Growing up, Christina Olsen knew her family to be her mum and dad, a sister, two brothers and herself. There was also another child that she knew her mum had lost, but the details were never spoken about until one day there was a knock at the door and that completely changed what Christina knew about her mother's past. Her best-selling award-winning family memoir was called Boy Lost and 10 years since it came out there's a new edition as a new family twist has emerged. Christina Olsen, welcome back to Life Matters. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. Well, I love that you're joining us from your writing room too. It seems so appropriate for, you know, the, the immersion that had to happen uh, into you know, these, all these lives. And it's been 10 years since you were on the program. For those who don't know the story of your mother and her lost boy, let's talk about that a bit. How did the knowledge of this absent child make itself felt when you were growing up? I guess it insinuated itself as secrets often do in families. We were never told about Peter. We had no real idea. But I think these things are in our bodies, you know. There's something in there that that we recognise. We didn't sort of see that until Peter knocked on the door that day when, goodness, I was already married and had two children of my own, uh, completely out of the blue. So, but the general feeling amongst us was that we already knew him even though no one had ever told us so you know i guess even though families try to keep these secrets it's they're in the air and they're in our bodies and somehow we know them well the way you write it it's clear that it kind of floated around with your mum with this this air of sadness and it sounds like it really colored the way that you as children related to her and that you felt you had this kind of responsibility towards her to to make her life not hard absolutely we we adored her she was a wonderful mother but even as children we realized there was something there there was a a pattern of sadness if you like around her that even though she you know she cared for us beautifully there was always this attendant sadness so i guess we felt that perhaps there was something lacking in us and so we tried very hard to be the best we could and to and to make her happy looking back that's how it seems I mean we wouldn't have been able to articulate it back then No and you wouldn't have been able to achieve it because the the trauma that had gone into her state at that point was was huge what did you start to uncover about her early life with the man who became Peter's father It was brutal, it was brutal from the time it began she went to live with him in Cairns he was a a Greek immigrant and um, after the research I did, I realised what a terribly brutal life he'd had before he'd left Greece during the war. Uh, but that all came, started to come through him. So they went to Cairns. She got pregnant very quickly with this, with this little boy and the violence started almost immediately. Michael had a, a, a little Greek cafe up there. She was made to work in it at all hours. Um, but if anything went wrong, if something, you know, it's the usual thing with violence, it, one tiny thing can set it off and he would throw her down the sets of stairs, he would bash her and, yeah, and it was, it was, it was shocking. And so no her really too. Right. And stuffed her, absolutely. There was, there was never any food in the house. When, when you look at photographs of her now, she's terribly, terribly thin. And even though she tries to smile in photographs, they, it doesn't work. It's, it's just not there. Yeah. But anyway, her family finally found out that what was going on and that's when, yeah, that's when things started to change. Well, tell us about the, the moment at the train station that you write about in such a, a raw fashion when she tries to get away. She, uh, 
she one day realised that she had to get away or she and Peter would both die. I think she she came to that realisation. Um, luckily, her grandmother in Brisbane had also, you know, picked up on this and had sent her a, a train ticket in the mail because she would have would not have had the wherewithal to get a, a ticket herself. So one morning she got brave enough when Michael was uh, not there, um, wrapped Peter up with a few bits and pieces that she had and went to the train station in Cairns, got on the train, but before it pulled out, he found her. We don't know how. People must have seen her hurrying to the station and just pulled the baby from her arms, told her that she would be dead if she tried to stop it and to stay on the train or he would kill them both. And she knew from her experience with him that he meant it. So she had to stay on the train. So she stays on the train. She she comes back to Brisbane. She's taken to hospital immediately because she is so malnourished. What do they discover yeah. there? They discovered there that she is pregnant again with the baby who will be my sister, but is so ill that she's kept in hospital until until she's born. Michael, uh, fortunately, doesn't know about this pregnancy and probably wouldn't have cared if he did. Um, besides, a girl in his culture at that stage, you know, wasn't terribly valuable. So my sister was born here in Brisbane as my mother tried valiantly to try to find Peter and to get him back. But, of course, we know that that just didn't happen. Yeah, despite the, the threats of, you know, both their deaths, she, she tried really hard, didn't she? And Peter tried really hard too, you, did, you discovered later. What, what did you find out about how he had tried to find her? Peter um, contracted polio not long after he was taken. So he had this fairly miserable childhood um, being called a crip and other names by his father and his new stepmother, uh, as well as everyone else. So from the time he was very small, he knew that the, the stepmother, the, the woman Michael had subsequently married, was not his mother. And so he would he would just keep running away trying to find his real mother. He would get on trains, he would just swing himself up with his one good leg and, and go looking blindly for this woman. He had no idea where she was. He was in Sydney then and my mother was in Brisbane, but he it, it was in him very early that, that he would find her and one day he did. Yes, what was that moment like for, for everyone involved? It was it was extraordinary because we hadn't been told about Peter, uh, although, as I said, we kind of felt it in our bodies that when he, he he knocked on the door one day, he'd married by then and had a child of his own and uh, had found my mother's address in through births, deaths and marriages as you could back then and at first went to my grandmother's house and he gave her, she gave him the address. So they waited outside the house one afternoon until a woman who looked approximately what he thought she'd look like uh, walked in the gate. And so then he, uh, he knocked on the door and... <laughs> She opened it. <laughs> well, I wonder what that moment was like for them because, I mean, you, you want to go, yay, happy ending, but it's not that simple, is it, after such loss? It's never it's never easy. It's never that, that simple. They'd both suffered so much. They'd both been told such different things about the other. They'd both had such different lives up until then. They tried incredibly hard to make it feel as if nothing had ever intervened. But, of course, the whole world had intervened by then. Michael's father and, and the terrible lies he'd told Peter about her, although Peter said he'd never believed them anyway. And, and my motherhood... I guess, hardened her heart against ever seeing this boy again. So they had a lot of work to do. I think the thing between them that they shared most was shame, this sense of terrible shame of being of, of losing a child and of being a lost child. 
and I think that's still I think we've still got that in in our in our culture that somehow it was their fault that they that they ended up in this situation. Yeah, I mean, you reflect on that in the book, Christina Olsen. You you talk about it just seeming unbelievable that people could have betrayed him and dismissed him and not helped him at every step of the way. But then you see that there are parallels even today with that, aren't there? There are parallels. And it was one of the things that really galvanised me, that when I looked around, and that year that I was trying to finish this book, there had been four apologies in the national parliament and they were all about mothers having children ripped from their arms, basically. So there was the stolen generation, first and foremost, of Aboriginal children. There were the child migrants who were taken from their mothers, poor mothers in in, in Britain and brought to Australia and dumped on remote cattle stations where they were treated abominably. There was, of course, the children of forced adoption. Um, you know, back then, when, when if you were single and had a baby, you know, the most most common outcome was that um, uh, you lost it. And what was the other one? I'm trying to think what the other one was. Um, uh, oh, the children of the poor, the, the forgotten Australians, we call them, who, again, were taken from their parents if they didn't have shoes on that morning. Ooh. Poor parents usually and ended up in institutions. I've just been involved in in a book that uh, about one forgotten Australian in particular and reading it just I wept all the way through it, the, the, the things people do to children. And I think even now, it's true. Yeah, well, and you write too about that, uh, the fact that, you know, your brother's polio and the effects on his body somehow helped people kind of distance themselves from him and perhaps blame him for his misfortunes. And that's certainly a parallel that we see still today. Yeah. We're speaking with Christina Olsen about Boy Lost, her family memoir. It came out 10 years ago. But as often happens with families with secrets, there are, there are more secrets that emerge. And Christine, I want to quickly ask you about how things were for your mum and your father, that, you know, this man she met after these horrific events had happened to her, losing her yes. child, you know, having uh, Sharon, Peter's uh, sister. Then she meets yes. your father and they make this pact. Tell us about yes. that. Extraordinary, really. It's extraordinary to me still that when these two people meet and finally can trust another person, another member of the opposite sex, it, it's, a, it's because of a, a shared loss. And that shared loss had been the loss of a child and, and a, a son for both of them. So my mother had, had lost Peter and my father had lost a child in Sweden. He'd, he'd only been in Australia a few years when they met, but he'd left behind uh, a little boy um, in, in in very sad circumstances who he'd always hoped would come, that he'd always planned to bring to Australia, but it never happened. But I think that's what galvanised them, that they'd both thought they would could never trust a member of the opposite sex again, that they that they would always be alone. Um, but when they did meet each other, it was it was this thing that galvanised them, this loss of a child. But then they agreed never to speak of it again. They had this incredible sharing of 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 information, and then then the walls went up. It was it was the time of secrets. I think people felt again a shame uh, about these sorts of circumstances. That I mean, how could you speak about this in um, you know in, when you're in company and people ask you how many children you have? And my mother would have thought, well, this four running around the yard but in fact there's five or even six but I can't say that so the the great shame of somehow you know feeling as if you've intentionally lost a child of your own um, I think just made people not talk about it so no one did talk about it I think my mother spoke to her sister her very close sister about about it because she'd been there and witnessed it but my father 
rarely spoke about it at all. Mm. We didn't we didn't know about his lost child at all. And sounds like that your family, Christina, was quite close. You know, you you you've got your sisters, you've got this this new sibling. You yourself have children and now grandchildren. How has Peter's return changed the way you relate to your family? I guess it's made me think a lot about the shapes of families and how they come together and how they can be splintered up as well and how precious they are in in our society wherever and whenever. Um, Peter and I are, are very close. He's, he's close to all of us. But I guess because, especially when I was researching the book, I spent a lot of time with him in, him in Sydney. One of his rooms became my bedroom because I was there so often. Um, but it's it's difficult. You know, we didn't share some of those common things in childhood you know, falling out of trees and being rushed to hospitals and, the you know, the, the school fates, the, all those sorts of things, the family meals. So it's taken a lot of kind of emotional embroidery, if you like. It's, I mean, any family is an ongoing effort, I think, but especially when it's one like this, you've got to keep remembering, you know, to pick up the pieces, I guess. Yes. Well, and speaking of that kind of fragmentation and that, that cyclical nature of what's gone on in your family, your son had some news for you in the 10 years since this book was written too. Tell us that. Quite extraordinary. But um, he, uh, he lives in New Zealand these days and I flew in one day. Usually he just, you know, holds my hand and, and takes my, my, my case and off we go. But this day he said, no, we're going to have a drink at the bar, Mum. And um, I said, no, no, we don't have a drink at the bar. He said, well, we're going to today. And he told me a story. <laughs> he told me a story as we sat there, me wanting to just quickly get home and see his children, uh, about a phone call he'd had from a young woman in Brisbane who was trying to find her father. And I said, oh, okay, that's good. And, uh, and the, were you able to help? Were you, could, did you did you help her? And he said, yes, mum, I did. I did a DNA test and it was 99.9%, at which, at which point he had my attention fully, of course. <laughs> you must <laughs> have both, felt that was so surreal. It absolutely was in this empty bar in Christchurch Airport. And, of course, then we both began to cry. But what had happened was that, you know, at 16 he'd had a little dalliance with a lovely young girl who had been working at the local hamburger shop with him. They both went their separate ways. He had no idea that a pregnancy had begun that afternoon uh, until this this lovely young young girl, whose name is Talia, we call her Tia, who's a firm, firmly placed member of her family now, called him that day. So the, this whole pattern of lost children is, is you know, just keeps cascading down, I guess, along with the, you know, little elements of grief and shame, I suppose, that always go with that, but also with the joy that comes with it, in, especially with, with, with Tia and her, her little family, because she's maybe a great-grandmother now. It's what happens when the good generations do it very early. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, and you, you've got, you know, grandchildren all over the place, and Peter became a grandfather too. Did that change things for him? Absolutely. I, I think it gave him a, uh, a real sense of self that perhaps had been missing a little, um, despite his protestations. He would always say he was absolutely fine and very happy with the family he'd, you know, he'd found. But I think becoming a grandfather made that all very firm and he could see his own cascade of, you know, the genetic cascade and, and the way things can actually turn out well. Things can, you know, actually be happy. You can have a happy life despite everything um, that happens. And I guess that's been the lesson for all of us as well, that 
that's, there's always an upside. That is an amazing thing to come out of such an amazing story. Just finally, Christina, I mean, your mother's life, as, as you've written, was this incredible journey, this roller coaster, this patchwork of experiences. Where was she at when she died? Where was she at when she died, did you say? Yeah. What, what, what kind of state of mind was she in about everything that had happened? I think she was still a little bit confused, to be honest. I think it was incredibly difficult for her to come to to grips with the guilt of losing a child and the shame that she felt that, that society would put on her or had put on her for this loss of a child. And as I said earlier, you know, she didn't know how to articulate it. How many children does she say she has? Or before Peter came back anyway, how many could she, you know, how many could she talk about? And so she, I think, retreated a little into that, into that sadness. So, um, I think I think in the, at the end she was she was fine, but there was always this for all of us this edge of sadness around our mum that we could never dislodge, despite everything we tried, every every joke we told, every cake we made, every family gathering we had, it it, it was still there. And I think that's the case for just about any woman who has lost a child in any kind of circumstance. And, and those groups that we've talked about before. I think we've got to, you know, remember that. I think there should be a, a national day, actually, that, 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 that celebrates or records these sorts of losses for women because our family by no means is, you know, is rare. Yeah, and as you say, it is still so hard to talk about it. But Christina, it is wonderful to hear about those those patches of joy and, and down the years, the joy re-emerging from time to time in your story uh, as in others. Thank you so much for telling us more about that today. Thanks so much, Hilary. Pleasure to have you on the show. Christina Olson, award-winning novelist and the author of Boy Lost, a family memoir. The 10-year anniversary edition has just been published. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.